so I do appreciate that. Um, there's a pastor that was much like myself, and uh, he was known for preaching word for word out of his sermons. And uh, one of the people in the congregation, he got tired of it, and he waited one morning when the pastor, he would automatically come up and he would lay his notes in the pulpit, and sometimes he would go out and greet people. He was waiting until he was away from the pulpit, and one of those guys, a trickster, probably like Denny himself, came up and stole one of those pages of scripture, or one of the pages of his notes, and took it up out of the way so the sermon would be less long, and so he could uh, have get out of here a lot sooner. And uh, so the preacher began, and he was preaching and preaching and preaching until he came to that page where that guy had taken it up out of his notes, and he said this, and he said, and Adam said unto Eve, and he paused and realized, where did that go? <laughs> and Adam said to Eve, and he says, it seems like there must be a leaf that's missing. And uh, so, you know, the leaf, is they try to sew that together. Uh, there was another story about a guy, was, he was a guest preacher, and uh, he was up there, and uh, he asked uh, the pastor of the church, he says, now how long do I have to preach? And he says, well, you have about 30 minutes. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. They got up there, and he was preaching and preaching and preaching. 30 minutes came, and he was still going got into 40 minutes and 50 minutes and then an hour and then an hour and 10 minutes. One of the guys in the pulpit got, you know, the pew got tired of it. He found a hymn book, reached back, picked it up and tried to throw it at the preacher. The preacher ducked and hit the guy at the, in the choir loft and he says, hit me again, I still hear him preaching. So, uh, but anyway, we're going to be in Ezekiel 22, Ezekiel 22 uh, this afternoon. Ezekiel 22, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 23 through 31, particularly in verse 30. Uh, just one verse in particular, but we're reading through to give us some context as to what this is about. Ezekiel sometimes can be a strange book, but, uh, you know, it's just, this is not one of those passages that are really hard to understand. But it does give you an insight into the conditions of Jerusalem at this period of time. So in Ezekiel 22, and I want to go ahead and begin to read. Starting in verse 23, the Bible says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, that's Israel, the Jewish people, Thou art the land that is not cleansed nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They have devoured souls, they have taken the treasure and precious things, they have made her many widows in, in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law, they have profaned mine holy things, they have put no difference between the holy and profane. That is, you know, the holy and the common. You know, to treat something that is holy and treat it as common would be considered profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean, and have hid their eyes from my Sabbath, and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey, and shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. Their prophets have dabbed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord, when the Lord had not spoken, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed a stranger wrongfully. I used to have this one guy in the in church, and he would tell me, he says, Pastor, you know, oftentimes preachers preach, and they seem to overlook some of these passages of Scripture where they talk bad about the pastors and the prophets and all those kind of things. And 
when they're not doing their, their job. And this is one of these passages of Scripture. Why? Because he's looking at the prophets and they're not saying the word of the Lord. They're out there just trying to convince them that everything's okay when the whole time the, their sin is caught up to me and they're about ready to face judgment. Their princes have put into policy the things that are evil. I mean, it's just everything that you can imagine from the Levites all the way up to uh, the, the politicians. I mean, the whole through and through, all those that God has elevated to a position of authority have corrupted themselves. Look at verse 30. It says, And I sought for a man among them, that should make up the hedge and stand at a gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. Let us pray and we'll get into the message. Heavenly Father, again, I pray for your help. And Lord, I pray we just challenge our hearts once again about this area of missions. And uh, let us go out with a fire and energy to go and spread the wonderful gospel message wherever it can be found. Lord, thank you so much for this church and what it means to me. And Lord, thank you for giving us life that we might be used for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There was a fellow by the name of Bruce Larson. He was a pastor later on, but he recalls some years when he was younger and when he was going to church. And his father would oftentimes sit in the pew, and there was this guy that would walk up. He was one of the ushers in church, and the father would often point out to Bruce Larson, he says, do you see this guy over here? I mean, he had just dressed like everybody else. There was nothing really imposing about it. He didn't seem very impressive. He says, do you know who that is? Not only was he one of the leading professors of Chicago or what have you, but he was the guy that stood up to Al Capone. When everybody else said, There's, you, we, he's untouchable, you, you can't touch him. Of course, we realized later on that they got him on tax charges and things like that. But anyway, this was the guy that stood up to the, the monster in the land and, and, and confronted him and put an end to his tyranny here in Chicago. Really grabbed the attention because, you know, after he was, of course, peace and businesses and things like that began to thrive. It doesn't look like the Chicago the way it does now because now it's back into crime and chaos and that kind of thing. But his name was Frank uh, I'm probably going to butcher this last name, L-O-E-S-C-H. How you pronounce that? Lusk, I guess. I don't know. But he stood up against him, and, and every time that his father saw him, he said it brought a tear to his eye because somebody stood up for the people in the land. And this is what we're challenged by here is that uh, not only we talk about this guy that stood up against Al Capone, but there's a greater evil than Al Capone in this world, that is sin, it's Satan, it's all the things that we really know to be true deep down within our minds. But again, it's got to enter into our hearts. And he's just looking for somebody. God is looking for somebody who will just stand up and, and, and proclaim, thus saith the Lord, somebody who will stand up and live for righteousness, somebody that will stand for the nation, stand for their family, stand for their community, to stand in the gap before God. This is what he says here within his word. And it's really amazing that when God was looking for this man, he said, I found none. Well, I'm thinking to myself, well, of course there was Ezekiel. God, you made Ezekiel. Ezekiel, you told him, you said, Ezekiel, you're allowed to be hard-headed. Any more people don't want hard-headed preachers. But God says, I want to make you a hard-headed preacher because you're going to be dealing with the hard-headed people. They're not going to be wanting to listen to what you have to say. In fact, you want to look at their faces and they're going to look like they're going to tear your head off. 
And you're going to need to preach to them. You're going to need to be able to stand before them. They're going to threaten you with your life. But Ezekiel, I want you to tell my people their sins and stand before me. But now he's, again, he's to this point. And God takes notice. An inventory throughout all the land. And it doesn't seem like there's anybody there who's standing up for the people. Nobody who cares enough. To say thus saith the Lord. Nobody that says, hey, we need, we need to put in enough. To, don't you remember our history? Don't you remember that time of the judges where we were continually put into uh, uh, judgment the Moabites and uh, the Philistines and all these others took over us and ruled over us for periods of time because of our wickedness, because we've gotten so far away from God. Don't you remember? Nobody like that. Nobody at all. Ezekiel was 25 years old when he and his wife were taken captive to Babylon in 597 B.C. Can you imagine 25 years of age and he's called to, uh, to give the most powerful gospel message there is to, to face these people despite knowing that they are going to terrify him to the best of their ability. 597 B.C. along with 10,000 other Jews were uh, part of the southern kingdom of Judah and five years later when he was 30 God called him into the ministry. 30 years old to, to, to preach the gospel. Ezekiel was both a prophet and a priest, and you could tell from this writing, you know, all throughout, if you read through the book of Ezekiel, and I hope you do, I hope you do your devotions and you read. Um, sometimes we have different ways of doing it. I, I read the Old Testament, and then I'll do a New Testament book. And so I go from New Testament to the Old Testament, back and forth. But if you read all through the book of Ezekiel, it lays out the details of the temple and everything that's laid out before, he knows what he's talking about. He knows what a priest is supposed to be. He knows what the law says. He knows what the temple is supposed to represent. He knows he's the Lord of the house. He knows all these things. And it's part and parcel because he was a, a priest, yes. A prophet, yes. But also because he cared. He ministered in Babylon for about three decades, the 6th century B.C. Extended about 22 years to around 571 or 570 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen because of sin. 722 B.C. is when that happened in the hands of the Assyrian Empire. But now they are being threatened here with Babylon. They're going to come up against them. They're going to fall just as many of the prophets have been foretelling was going to happen, and yet they continue to not believe God. And we get to this 22nd chapter here. It's really amazing to me when you read from top to bottom, and you look at what God is doing. He's laying out an indictment against them. We hear over and over again that the word indictment thrown around in our politics. But here God's laying out His indictment against His own people. He's showing them their sins. He says, uh, Now thou son of man, verse 2, wilt thou judge, wilt thou judge the bloody city? Yea, thou shalt show her all her abominations. Then say thou, Thus saith the Lord God, The city sheddeth blood in the midst of it, and that her time may come, and maketh idols against herself to defile herself. And you come down through, you notice over and over again that he points out their idolatry. Idolatry in the temple, idolatry in their homes, idolatry in their life, and they were not ashamed about it. Also, when we think about the priests, they were taking advantage of the people. They were um, just using them for their money, and they, they were using it as a way to, to, to make themselves filthy rich. They call it filthy lucre in the Bible. In fact, they preach against that in the New Testament. He says, don't, don't let a man who is over God's hair, don't, don't let him do it for filthy lucre's sake. That's one of the requirements, First Timothy chapter 3. 
And that's exactly what they were doing here. So there was, there was this idolatry going on. There was this an abomination of taking advantage of the poor in the street. There was this uh, just wrong judgment that was being pronounced by the people, and they were making everything upside down. And it's really amazing. They were calling evil good, good, evil. All throughout, you can read down through again, you can see uh, the, the errors of their way. But God had been putting up with this for some time now. Ezekiel names all the reasons why the defendant is guilty and must be punished. And then he says at the end, he comes to the verse, and he says, And I saw for a man among them, making up the hedge, standing the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. I want you to understand what standing in the gap is. Uh, you know, I could give you the, the Old Testament version of it, you know, where if there was breaches within the, uh, the walls of the city, you know, they were always, if you had any breaches whatsoever, they would be open to enemy attack. And so somebody, whenever the enemy was coming, had to stand in that place in order to keep the enemy from prevailing against them. Somebody with a weapon, somebody with a trumpet, somebody to do something in order to try to stay off the enemy forces. I remember being in the Virginia Army National Guard, and uh, we would be doing this uh, uh, riot control training. And we have these uh, shields that we put up for. We had a face mask and a shield that we would wear. We had a baton, and, of course, we had a weapon uh, that would be not far behind us, but we wouldn't carry them because people were known to reach in and try to grab the weapons from you. We would all stand together, and we would just march in unison and march in unison all the way through trying to push the people back, and we would do this for, for days on end just trying to practice because riots were real. They're still going on all the time, though I don't see much riot control training going on. Um, but we, we were training for this uh, kind of event in case somebody tried maybe storm the Capitol, whatever, I don't know. Whatever the riot may be, but we were to be there to, to protect. And this is the idea, to, to guard, to put up a defense, to keep uh, from being overthrown and destroyed because of that breach that was in the way. What is the breach? Sin defilement, corruption. All the things that God said, I want to bring judgment against you because of this uh, sin that's being committed in the land. In verse 30, God said to have sought for someone to intercede on behalf of the people to stand in the gap and to advocate for them, but he found none. Find in the Old Testament, there, there was somebody in the Old Testament we know as an intercessor, his name was Abraham. Abraham was the man who uh, recognized that uh, God was going to come down and destroy the land of Sodom, and Lot was there in that land, and we thought maybe by chance, maybe Lot would have an influence there, but he didn't have any influence whatsoever. Lot was more or less influenced by the land of Sodom, and uh, even his own sons didn't believe him when he told him that uh, there is judgment determined against him. But Abraham was this intercessor where he stood up and he pled with the Lord. He says, will you, Lord, will you not judge this place? Will you not destroy it for 50 people? Will you not destroy it? I know somebody that's there in that town. I, I know where he lives. I know his home. I know his sons. I know his daughters. Lord, don't destroy it for 50 righteous per adventure. Don't destroy it for 40, 35, 20, all the way down to 10. And they left off from asking from that time forward. And at the end of the day, we found out that there were not even 10 righteous to be found. Number one, I think it's sad because Lot could have had an influence there. Well, he probably shouldn't have been there in the first place because he knew what kind of city it was. But 
if he would have stood and preached, if he would have shown a little bit of light, punched holes in that darkness, it might have been a different story. There, there were none like Abraham. They were looking for somebody like Abraham in the land, but there were none there. They were looking for somebody like Moses who, when he was up on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord and just getting the directions and receiving the Ten Commandments, and then the Lord's anger began to um, be poured out, and he told Moses, he said, I want you to get down from here. The children of Israel had defiled themselves, and he goes down and he casts down the Ten Commandments and begins to rebuke the people for their sins, and he takes that golden image that they had made shortly after. I mean, this is really incredible. Here, these be your gods, Israel. Took that image, stamped it to powder, made them drink of it out of the river, judged them for their sins, and then he went up before God and began to intercede for them. And he says, God, please don't destroy them, because God told him this. He says, I'm not ready to wipe out every single Israelite here and start over with you, Moses. And you'll be the father of a new nation and of a new land. And Moses said, please don't do that. Lord, these are your people. And he interceded for him. And God didn't destroy him for the sake of Moses interceding and praying for them. Found none like Abraham. He found none like Moses. He found none like David, who even after he had sinned, and he committed this, what to us doesn't seem like so bad of a thing, but he uh, caused the census to go out to number the people. And uh, after he numbered the people, then he realized the mistake that he had made. God gave him a, three choices to make for judgment. And he says, you could either be delivered into the hands of the enemy, you could either be a, a, a plague go out, or I forget what the third option was, but he chose the plague. Death angel went out and began to consume many of the people in the land, and David saw that death angel with his very own eyes, and there in the threshing floor of Aruana, and he began to uh, plead with Aruana. He says, I need this threshing floor. I want to build an altar. I want to sacrifice to God that this, this plague might be stopped. He began to intercede for the nation of Israel, and that death angel put up his sword from his sheath. Where are all the intercessors of the land? Again, we see all the defilement and things that are going on, but we, we, we recognize there is a need, there is a great need that is evident right before us. A great need for somebody to stand in the gap, to make up the head, stand in the gap before him. Most important example of standing in the gap before God comes in the life of Jesus Christ for the very purpose of being born and taking on human flesh upon Himself, God in the flesh, and He He, he takes our sin upon Himself to atone as an atonement force, as a vicarious, a substitutionary atonement. Try not to use the big words, right? Substitutionary atonement for us and for our sins. Yes, Jesus stood in the gap there on the cross of Calvary, evident of that very fact where he took our sin debt for us. The ultimate act of standing in the gap of God's judgment is he took the wrath of God upon himself. Our sin left us vulnerable to divine punishment. Hell threatened us. Satan bound us. But Jesus willingly offered his life as the only acceptable payment for that sin to be set free, to set us free from that awful curse of sin. The Bible says that Christ had redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree, Galatians chapter 3. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He took our debt. He promised his life. 
Because I live, you should live also. It's a promise that the Lord gave us as He stood in the gap, removing the penalty and power of sin so that all might come to repentance. And this is the wonderful gospel message that we have here. Unless lost humanity about us accepts Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, I mean, they're all ruined. They need the gospel. They need somebody to go out. They need somebody that's going to intercede, somebody that's going to plead with them with the gospel, somebody to tell them about the Savior. I'm afraid if we don't go out and we tell them about the Savior, there's only one other option that's here before us, and you see it in verse 31 of your text. What does verse 31 say? Therefore, have I poured out my indignation upon them. What happens if nobody stands in the gap? What happens if they don't hear? What happens if there's no repentance? What happens if they don't turn? Therefore, have I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. Really sad to stay, see, but uh, they needed somebody who would be an advocate, an intercessor, somebody to love them. Find the advocate. We know who the advocate is. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that you should not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But how little of the world has heard of the fact that there is an advocate. That there is somebody who, who has stood in the gap. Thank God that he's interceding for us on the throne, but yet that doesn't help them who haven't heard. Read in the book of Exodus of the Passover. Moses gives the instruction to the children of Israel as he comes down to the last plague. Tells them this is what you need to do. You need to go out and get a lamb from among you. I want you to take that lamb and I want you to shed the blood of that lamb. The wages of sin is death. I want you to take that blood and I want you to put it on the doorpost and the sign of a cross. I want you to go in and I want you to uh, take of this, this lamb and I want all of you to eat it and consume it. Again, Jesus says in John chapter 6, He says, unless you uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Again, He's referencing the Passover. The death angel would come. He would say, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. When the death angel comes, if he's passed over, it's too late. They'll hear nothing but what uh, the, the Egyptians heard, screams, crying, pain, suffering, death. But it's the blood that makes the difference, isn't it? It's the blood that uh, atones for our sins. It's the blood by which we are saved. It's the blood that helps stay the gap of sin. It's the blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We need to remember that. The fact that God's searching for a man shows us the desire that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So we see that there's a great a desire for the Lord to see that they might be saved. We see a, a great danger before them because of God's judgment against them. There's only one way to be spared, and that's turning to God in faith. Ezekiel 14, verse 20. Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, 
they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. There's the clue. They needed righteousness. Was it with Jeremiah? It says, how can a, it might have been Ezekiel, but it could have been Jeremiah. I forget which prophet it is. It's, but he says, can a leper change his spots? The Ethiopian was born with that skin collar. He can't do anything to change it. Leper, every leper there ever was has spots on them. Shows the true nature of what they really are. There must be a transformation that you need righteousness. You can't do this on your own. There's got to be a radical change that takes place. A radical change they can have, but it shows us that it doesn't matter how many righteous people do we try to stand up for other people. You're, you're standing for other people. You can't save them. You can't save them, but you can lead them to the one who can. But the problem is glaringly obvious that our lives are filled with many holes, gaps, breaches, because we lack any righteousness of our own. It must be the righteousness of Christ. Then there's this, again, this great desire, great danger, great desire I mentioned. You say, what can we do? We can pray. We can preach. We can plead. We can go to them. We can point out the holes that they, they have tried to live by. And you see, you're trusting in all the wrong things. You're trusting in all the wrong things, and if you continue to trust in these, these holes are not going to be able to stay up against the destruction that's determined against every single sinner. Should not the judge of all this earth do right? When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't because he was a wicked God. They deserved punishment. They, they deserved it. God revealed himself in so many different ways and tried to get our attention I remember over in the gospel records where he's, Jesus says to the cities that he has revealed himself to, doing miracles and teachings, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! Woe unto thee! And he begins to lay out these different towns. For if the, those who were alive in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah were, were alive, they would have repented a long time ago. Now they shall rise up in judgment against you. Folks, we see the, the answer to why missions. I've laid it out before you as perfectly as I know how between Romans 10 last week, the reality of hell this week, the, the need for an intercessor to stand in the gap now. Next week I'll be preaching out of uh, a psalm, you know, he that go forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, should doubtless come again rejoicing. There are several passages of Scripture that really points out to the fact that God desires for, many, for men to turn unto Him, but yet somebody's got to go again, tell them. How many times do I say that? God's looking for a man to make up the hedge and poke holes in the darkness. In Ezekiel, we read the words that express the great sadness of God when He found no one who was righteous. Again, I say with lamentation, I say with sorrow, God doesn't want them to be destroyed. He doesn't want to uh, pour out His wrath upon them. He doesn't want to send them in judgment. He desires that they turn. But then here's, here's the last point, and then we, we, we close. There's a great decision. A great decision. You see, with everything, there's a decision we've got to make. 
whatever we're challenged by, we come to the scriptures and we see uh, where we are lacking, maybe in our faith, and we say, oh, am I just going to be convicted by it and do nothing by it, or what am I going to do about this? There's a decision-making in, in every single point along the line. Am I going to take part of missions or am I not? Am I going to do what God wants me to do? Am I going to go where God wants me to go? Am I going to give what God wants me to give? Am I going to uh, live for the Lord, how, in walking in purity and light and, and having fellowship with God? Am I going to do my devotions the way that God wants me to have devotion? Am I going to do what God wants me to do or not? It calls us all for a decision, and so it brings us to this one point, who's going to stand in the gap? And can I say it ought to be us? It ought to be us. You see, God could have sent the angels, couldn't he? I could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world. But he didn't do it that way. I read to the book of Revelation and I read where there's going to be angels that will be flying to give a witness. They'll have his two witnesses that are there, but that's during the tribulation period. That's too late for us. See, he didn't call angels to do what we are called to do. He could have sent the Son back and walk on this earth, but he didn't choose to do that. He's at the right hand of heaven interceding for us. He's calling you. He's calling you. And if you don't tell him, who will? May we make that decision. Uh, this morning as we get ready to head out this week. You're going to be with co-workers. You're going to be with friends. You're going to be with loved ones. You're going to be with people that I'll never be able to meet or talk to or, or even know. And you know their names. But will you stand in the gap? That's the challenge uh, this afternoon. And so let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank God for those who are answering the call to go out and uh, to be obedient, to witness wherever they go. Lord, and I know that there are some here in, in the midst. I know that they faithfully witness. But we need much more. Lord, we see the world in which we are living in. They lack the Lord. The Lord is not in all their thoughts. It's not in all their ways. They're not living for you. They don't know you. I see that we elected a new speaker of the house, and they mocked that he is a, a Christian who believes the Bible. And it shows us the state of which we are living in, where Christianity is mocked and ridiculed. We see that there's a lack of love in the world in which we, you and I are living in. Lord, I pray. I pray you would use us to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from, from the power of Satan unto God, that the Lord might have full reign in our hearts. Lord, thank you for, so much for your word. And may you do your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.